This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual podcasters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com. This podcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this podcast is intended to be considered as advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Insight is Capital podcast. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. Our special guests are Sam Safe and Greg Taylor of Purpose Investments. Sam Safe is the founder and CEO of Purpose Investments, which he formed following the sale of Claymore to BlackRock in March of 2012. This year, Purpose Investments crossed over $9 billion in assets under administration and runs 47 funds and ETFs. Sam started Claymore in Canada in January of 2005 and was the former president and chief executive officer leading the implementation of the company's business development and corporate strategies. Over the seven years of its operation, Claymore grew to $8 billion in assets and established itself as a Canadian leader in bringing intelligent, low-cost, exchange-traded funds to investors through its family of 34 exchange-traded funds across broad asset classes. Prior to Claymore, Sam was an investment banker with RBC Capital Markets, where he worked since 1999. He played a key role in developing the Structured Products Group at RBC Capital Markets in both Canada and the U.S., where he structured and raised capital for both Canadian and U.S. asset managers. Sam is a chartered financial analyst, has a Bachelor of Applied Science with an emphasis on industrial and systems engineering from the University of Toronto. Sam is currently vice chair of the Sunnybrook Hospital Foundation Board, chair of the Art Gallery of Ontario Corporate Development Committee, a member of the Art Gallery of Ontario's Foundation Board, and University of Toronto Mechanical and Industrial Engineering Advisory Board. Greg Taylor is CIO of Purpose Investments, a data-driven manager with a focus on managing risk through active trading strategies. Greg specializes in finding and exploiting pockets of volatility in the market to drive returns. He spent more than 15 years managing pension and mutual fund assets at Orion Capital Management. He also held a role of senior portfolio manager at Front Street Capital and Logic Asset Management before coming to Purpose Investments. Greg serves on the investment committee for the MS Society of Canada and advises the finance program's portfolio management course at Bishop's University. He has won numerous Brendan Wood International Top Gun awards and is a regular host and guest on BNN Bloomberg and Toronto's all-news radio station, 680 News. Greg is a CFA charter holder and has a BBA in finance from Bishop's University. Without further ado, my conversation with Sam Safe and Greg Taylor. Welcome, Sam. Welcome, Greg. Welcome to the show. I'm really excited about this conversation with you guys. It's great to be here and I and, uh, hope you're doing well and, and staying strong. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. You as well. It feels like an eternity since we last spoke. This year has been, it's been so surreal and the last six months have been so much like like one big blob of time. It's really great to have you both. Thanks very much. By now we've had, we've had a, a fair bit of time to reflect on what's happened this year with COVID, with the pandemic, with markets. I want to take you guys back to those three weeks in March when equity markets were crashing, when credit markets were freezing, the economy was shutting down, and people were being told to stay at home, don't come to work. Everything was really coming to a grinding halt. And before the Fed and the central banks and governments decided that there would be a stimulus, take us back to what you were thinking at that moment in time, to what you were going through. Yeah. And, and what I'd say is it feels like an eternity ago, first off, but what, what a scary moment. You know, I, rem- I guess, I guess, you know, what the best way to describe it is 
you know, I, I went through in building my first company, Claymore, I, I went through, of course, the financial crisis and at a different time, a different structure. But the financial crisis felt like it came about in a period of time. Like you felt it in smaller waves, but it, of course, on the grand scheme of thing was such a massive impact to our industry, to our customers, to our markets in so many ways. But there was a moment when I was on a plane on a Sunday night and I was taking off and I uh, was oh, sorry, I just landed and, and I looked at my Blackberry and, and it was the, the bankruptcy of, of Lehman Brothers. And I, it, it felt at that moment, wow, okay, what does this mean? But yet it wasn't personal. It wasn't yet, it wasn't going to impact me and my business directly. So on Monday morning, I was going to go to work and yes, the markets were tough, but my people were going to be fine and we were going to have to think through, we had time to think and you could see a week, two weeks, three weeks or four weeks ahead and see the impact of these things. But in the moment, if I take that same moment and I think about the the impact of kind of this situation where you look at, there was a bunch of several moments in, in COVID that were creeping up and then there was the moment. And, and for me, it was actually interesting when the NBA actually announced that they were going to shut down. Yeah. That was the moment when I realized this is going to impact tomorrow, all of us. And it was, you didn't have the time to step back and say, okay, let's think about this team. Let's get together on Tuesday and talk through this. It was, no, tomorrow we are all going to be impacted. And so what are we doing tomorrow? And that feeling stayed with us for the next as for the next four or five weeks. So through um, the middle of March, you know, what I always said, it was like you were standing, staring into a fog and you couldn't even see your feet in front. You couldn't see if the step in front of you was going to land on pavement or you were going to step into an abyss. And so it was that you couldn't even look one step forward, one hour forward, one day forward. Whereas in the financial crisis, we, you, you had some time, you had the ability, it was slowly coming in. So I think that was the biggest impact for us is running a business, running the, not just the markets themselves, but just the uncertainty. And Greg and I talk about this, but if you go back to March 20th, and if you were sitting there running your business, and, and of course, between Feb, mid-February and March 20th, you had this massive violent decline in the markets. I think, I'm trying to think, peak to trough there, Greg, was it 37%, I think it was, around. On March 20th, I think March 20th was a very low. That was, if I recall, March 20th. Um, yeah. If you looked in ex- as a leader, you were running your business. And of course, a 37% decline in the markets happened all the time. But it was the violence of it and the trajectory. Because if on March 20th, you said, okay, let's extrapolate forward. And you said, if this continues, we're down 60% <clears throat> right. in another 20 days. That's when you are, you're going, you're running a business, you're running markets, and you're thinking about insolvency of like how your business runs. And how people are going to be, wow, you're also managing, do people have not only a job, are they going to be okay and health-wise and your family and your own personal, like it's, it was intense. Yeah. The holy shit moment. It's holy shit, but you don't have time to think about it. Yeah. You just have to go. And what ultimately came down to was with all of these moving variables and all these uncertainties, you had to make decisions and you had to make decisions with uncertainty of how the next day, the next hour we're going to look, but you had to make the decisions. And whether that's as an investor, whether that's as a portfolio manager on behalf of other investors, or whether that's as a leader, as a business owner, you have to make decisions. 
And and that's ultimately what you learn through this. Yeah, if I can just build on that, I, I completely agree with everything Sam said. It was the parallels with the global financial crisis are really real, just in the timing of how this hit. Uh, the other thing to add with this is just the whole demand shock. We've never had to really see a whole global economy shut down before. And, and there's created so much uncertainty and no one knew how that would react and what how things would happen when you reopen, which we're still working on right now. And then when you combine that with suddenly all the trading desks had to move from a work from home environment. So we had so much uncertainty with everyone in a new operating environment and it compounded to trying to figure out what's going to go on. And the other backdrop that I think is really interesting, just seeing how fast the market dropped was that we also went into this with so much money in passive investing. And I think that was a factor which really was became apparent as the speed of the drop happened as everyone was hitting sell on all these ETFs. Right. And all the ETFs had to sell the underlying securities. And at the end of the day, it created an interesting stock picking opportunity. But it all came out that's in hindsight. So there are a lot of contributing factors to make the speed of the drop in March something that's really unique and it's going to bear a lot of research going forward. Yep. It's easier said than done, right? You're not sitting there March 23rd thinking, I'm going to pull the trigger and start buying because you really don't know what's coming next. How much farther is this drop? Like you said, Sam, what to do? Do I just go to cash? So what followed? What did you wind up doing from that point on where, where you, you don't know, it's opaque, everything's red, but you're looking, you're trying to, trying to see the way forward. What did you do? Because I, I think anybody who could have gone back in time, and if, if anybody had said to you, Sam, Greg, this March, something terrible is going to happen. The economy is going to shut down. The markets are going to crash. There's this epidemic coming. This pandemic is, is spreading around the world. Even if you had that information in your hands beforehand, what could you have possibly done with that that would have been the correct thing to do? Because if you, we all know now in hindsight, cash was the worst possible thing you could have done. And now in hindsight, staying invested was the best thing you could have done. So where was the in-between? So first off, I think this is a it's a really important question. I think to Greg's point, though, it's oftentimes in hindsight you can analyze decisioning and and analyze how to best position and and how you should have either could have made better decisions or whatever it be because you have one hundred percent clarity. The the reality is, as an investor or in again as a business leader, as an individual, like in life, if you put yourself yourself up such that you're forced to make the hard decisions in moments with opaqueness and, and lack of clarity, you're actually put yourself in a really difficult place. So if, if I just focus on portfolio management as a decision, what would you do? You have to have made the decision of how to react to this type of thing through thinking about it well in advance. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, look at purpose. When I started this company, my core vision was managing to downside risks, managing to risk and, and, and thinking about risk is m the most important thing you can do. And we have great market upsides, but we have as many market downsides. And if the moments of downside, it's too late oftentimes to be making decisions because you, you don't know when the bottom is, you don't know when, you know, how further it could go or whatever it be. So what you have to have set out is one, ensuring that you have thought through what your you know tolerance and risk process and things like that you're looking for and then balance that with the the types of portfolio construction and, and goals that you have with returns and then two is ensuring that you have done your risk rigor in advance and so that when you come to this moment hopefully if the markets are down 37 percent and could go down another 30 percent you aren't 
anywhere close to being down 30% as a portfolio, as an individual, because you've already prepared for it. Now, again, the trade-off of that is that you had to be willing when the market was rip-roaring. Uh, you know, Greg, what was 2019's return in the markets? Over 20%. Yeah. So when the market was up 20%, you had to have a trade-off decision back then. You had to say, I'm willing to give up some of that return so that when that next event happens, whatever that be, pandemic or just financial crisis, leverage in the system, whatever it be, you have already played that trade-off decision. But if you're in middle of March making that decision, you're going to make the wrong decision most often than not. Because the right decision is to not do anything. The right decision is to not do anything. And in fact, the decision is to have a 10-year horizon and think, hey, you know what? Things are on sale. I think, Greg, you coined the amazing phrase around that point. I think you've heard it from others, but I, I'll put it, I'll, I'll, I'll say you did it, so we'll trademark it, which was that you know the markets are the only place where when things go on sale, people go uh, running from the store. Right. You know, and, and, and the problem is, is that actually when things go on sale, you should be running to the store. And that's unfortunately that when people are panicking, they're, they're making the wrong decision. And I think that's uh, like Pierre. And I hate this because it's like it's not the I don't I really don't want to make come across as the told you. But this is if we're in the moment you've made you've, you've you're too late. The decision has to be made many, many periods in advance to prepare for this event. Risk was real. We ignored it and we forgot about it in 2019 and, and frankly, for the last 10 years. Yeah, you can't have all your eggs in one basket because as much as everything did act the same in, in, in that dark few days of March, you have to have a diversified portfolio and you can't be all in one thing because that really can hurt you over time. And you don't want to get caught up trying to make these decisions at the wrong time and get forced to sell when you really don't want to. Yeah, it's one of those things where I think we all expected at some point there was going to be a correction of some kind, a bear market of some kind. I don't think we anticipated that it was going to be this kind of bear market situation. What, what made it evident now, I mean, looking in hindsight, one of the best performing portfolios was just the, the simple quarter in stocks, quarter in bonds, quarter in gold, quarter in cash. And cash was the worst of the four assets. But that basic portfolio has had its best performance in, in uh, the last quarter. What I wanted to try and capture was the mood of the moment that both of you being founders of asset management firms, what that felt like to you and how you overcame the initial fears that come with that. If I can start, one of the things that I think caught most people off guard is just when you're looking at the sell-off and what's going on and you see all the macro events and the lockdowns, the biggest fear that you have is something won't be done uh, to help it. And, and I think everyone had the global financial crisis in the back of their minds when, when we had a Lehman fail and the governments were slow to react and central banks really didn't take, took their time to actually respond. I, I think what that was the biggest fear. So that would be a repeat of that scenario. Uh, the good news is that in, in this year, it didn't happen at all. And it's almost to their credit, the central banks and the governments got together and were more proactive, throwing as much money at it as possible, trying to get everything to work. And, and I think this is something we're going to live with for a number of years because the amount of money printing and the stimulus that's gone in the system and the low interest rates is something that can't be unwound that quickly. But no one saw that in hindsight, that the government's going to be this proactive. And, and that's the one variable that I think a lot of people didn't know or didn't see coming when we saw that initial downdraft in March, that if you knew in perfect hindsight that the governments and the central banks would do everything in their power to get it to go, then that's when you get the scenario where you get inflation, you get gold going, you get equities going, you get bonds working because there's so much liquidity in the system. It has to go somewhere and it's inflating all assets. And, and that's the biggest wild card that I think is one piece of information that everyone would have liked to have learned in hindsight. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, 
frankly, I think it's really hard to have predicted the portfolio that you just structure. I, I think a lot of people, there are gold bugs and they, they are people who have lots of money in gold and they have their own reasonings. And some people do it as, a, as 20, 30, 50. Some people, uh, I'm sure, have 70, 80% of their wealth in gold, if not more. The reality is that having 25% of your money in gold is, is a tax <laughs> overall. Uh, you know, Saul, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just used that. It was just to, you know, make no, a no, point. no. I'm, I'm yeah. used to it. I want to re- reference it because, as you say, the optimal return. If you look at any year in, in history and you looked at what was the optimal portfolio, most people don't call that portfolio. And it's, and, and, and there's great, in our industry, we always have these charts. But one of the tables that you see a lot of is that. One where it says, what's the top performing asset class and the bottom yeah. performing asset class in every year? And you can see the randomness of every year. It's very hard. But the one thing it tells you is that diversification and broad diversification matters and, and asset diversification, factor diversification, things like that. And why that's important is that I think if you put up against most portfolios right now, just a well-diversified multi-factor strategy approach to all multi, like had interest rate duration, all of it factors of quality, value, and equities, growth. You had kind of cyclicals and you had structural exposures to commodities and alternatives and things like that, all in a portfolio, well-structured and, and truly diversified. You would have done perfectly well. And that's really what matters. But it's the reason is because of what Greg said. Even if you could have as forecasted that the central banks and the government was going to be active and engaged, and you looked at 08 and said, oh, there's no way that they're not going to throw stimulant right. the economy. There's no way that they're going to just let this sort of go on. You would never have been able to assess the magnitude of what they did. And so the, the, the surprise would have been not that they participated and helped, but that they did it at probably five times the size that people would have expected. And right. with the breadth, both at the central bank level in buying assets across the board and at the individual level and, and the business level, through capital injections, liquidity into the economy. All of that was done in such magnitude. Now, and, and I think, Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, if you go back, I don't know what the magnitude now would be. I remember at the moment, it was like the first stimulus bill that the U.S. put in place was actually at the same magnitude that they did over 18 months of the financial crisis with the central banks and things like that. So in, yeah. in a week, they did as much as they did over 18 months with this with the financial crisis so that's that was quite amazing and so the only way you can look at that and say oh i i selected that was to have made a call at that and so the outcome is seems fake frankly i think for all of us as investors it seems fake you look at it and you say wow like th- th- this is great march 31st markets you have recovered a couple percent about whatever uh, 10 percentage point from the ultimate lows and most people thought, okay, we've still got a lot of hurt ahead of us. Very few people, people felt that we hit the low on March 20th. There's a lot of people, smart people, calling a new low to be held. And a lot of people, I'm sure, used that small little recovery on March 31st to sell out of positions in their markets and went into cash or into diversify something else. And of course, what we've seen subsequently over the last six months has been a pretty unbelievable bull run in equities. It, it sure has. I, I'd say, look, I mean, I think we'll... As a society, I know that the, it's become quite cool and and um, such to joke with your friends about, oh, 2020 has been the worst year on record. I wish it never happened. Or can we take a sleeping pill to wake up on the 21st to 2021? And and people like look at it and that's such disdain. And they're right. There's a lot of people who are hurting. There's a lot of people who right. had 
a very difficult period of their lives and nothing to take away from it. But I actually think for society, we'll look back on 2020 and, and many people, I think, will look at it and say, wow, it, it really changed our lives. It changed the way we live. It changed the way we think. It changed the, our perspectives. And, and I try to take the positives from the negatives all the time. And, and I think that as individuals, if we don't learn individually from this, if we don't figure out how to take some positives out of it, then I think I think it's shame on this. And I, I think there's I think there's a lot to learn. And we'll get back to the routines that we like and the ones that we're used to, the ones that we've grown up all having. But this is a positive. It's a different routine, and and it's like that uncomfortable feeling of having to change your lifestyle. So I think it's a question of now stepping back and saying, okay, what do we like? Because I'm sure for a lot of people who got to spend time with their families more, get to spend time with themselves more, I think that that they'll probably look back at it and say that, wow, like that that was actually quite an interesting experience. I think on top of that, it's just how much is showing the technology can help. And I think it's pulled forward technology and, and changed five years. There were already trends going on in the background, like everyone was switching to online shopping, more to home delivery. Uh, and all that stuff suddenly got compressed and was suddenly here within two weeks. This was something that was supposed to happen in five years. And, and I think that's why that's one of the biggest changes that we're gonna, that's going to last with society. And I think everyone has to adapt and to change to that. And, and I think there's a lot of good that's come out of this. Technology has been great for innovation and productivity. And I don't think we could have done this 20 years ago when technology wasn't even close to this. It would have been an entirely different experience. We had to go suddenly work from home in, in the early 90s or that. Well, Nothing would have happened. They would have had to shut the market. Go back, go back to 2009, 2008, and think about um, a work from home structure then. The internet was not set up for the bandwidth. Absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> no. you know, think, about, think about this. And, and so reality is this, is, uh, this happened in a time when actually society was able to absorb it relatively well and not impact productivity as much as it would have if, if it was a decade earlier. Absolutely. And the whole retail experience, the amount of times Amazon delivers at my house would not have happened five, 10 years ago. And we would have had to go out to the store that often. And that changes the IMX too. And does that increase the spread of infection and, and how things happen? I, there's so much change in the technology that I think has been great for society. And that's going to be one of these lasting effects that I think it's going to be hard to go back to. Yeah. I'm curious like, what to know what your thoughts are on the economy itself because we know like the stock market has really separated from the economy there's a lot of unemployment there's a lot of people who are facing permanent unemployment what are your thoughts on that there's such a massive number of people who are still relying on government support fiscal stimulus paycheck protection where do you see that concluding is that something that's going to go on indefinitely for the time being or is that something that at some point the government's going to stop. I, I think it's actually, Pierre, the, the biggest challenge that we all face right now when we look forward. And I think it's what, what worries me personally is that, so I'll put it in context of a few things. So right now, things look relatively good. If you ask the average person, how, was, how bad was a lockdown? Unless you were a small business owner or a business owner in general, or in the, even if you were in the hospitality industry and you got terminated, for most people would say the lockdowns were pretty easy. It wasn't a bad thing. Government stepped in and my income was equal to, or like most in many cases, better than it was before. I had extra cash and things were relatively easy. And the, difficult, the, the difficulty of this, what would have been if you had, of course, high double digit, high teens, unemployment, things like that was offset by really strong government support and sponsorship. Now, a lot of pockets that were ignored or hurt, small businesses, I think, were meaningfully 
under-supported. Like really, if you're a small business owner, you had a, you've had a terrible experience in, in many cases. And, and I, I feel awful about small business owners. I feel awful about them because I think the government really did a poor job on this. But that said, so if you look at the moment in time, there was excess liquidity. A great stat I shared with the guys was that one of the bank CEOs shared with me was that they estimated that if the whole on the consumer level, at the individual level in Canada was about $35 billion created by the pandemic, the government threw $55 billion at the problem at, at, at individuals, at, right directly into the individual's hands. And so what that meant that there was actually excess $20 billion in the system that what is the result of that is we're seeing that credit cards have uh, paid down uh, ridiculously. You've seen massive right. of, of non-long-term debt. You've seen savings rates go up, like massive amount of capital. People are putting deposits and cash and savings. You've seen um, consumer spending, like some of the e-commerce giants and a lot of the businesses are having massive sales um, target growth. Like, you, like, How does Target do so well? How does Home Depot do? People have a lot of money and they're spending yeah. it. And so- the reality is that for most people, this has looked like pretty easy. It's okay. It's a pandemic. It's been fine. The hurt comes, frankly, when the fictitious part of it, the government doesn't keep doing this and they can't keep doing it. It's not sustainable. At some point, they're going to have to stop. And you know what the problem is that there, if you ask, um, there's an, there was an assumption that all of those people that were terminated will get right back into their jobs. Like at the, when a small business starts up again, they'll get their job back. Or when people start traveling again, people will go back to all the airlines will hire again. But that's actually not the case. There's, these aren't just temporary layoffs. And so there is a steady state, real structural uh, unemployment rate in the system that will stay there and it will be permanent. And many of those temporary job losses will become permanent. And my my concern, I think we talk about this all the time, is we're actually, if you think about what the steady state unemployment rate in Canada will likely be in the United States, it'll likely be in the high single digits long term today, like right. from, from this. <clears throat> and that's recessionary. So we are, we go from the pandemic to the real recession. And that's going to be driven by a consumer that can't spend, that is over leveraged, and that isn't supported and doesn't have a job. And, and I think we're going to have a real challenge there. And so I am concerned about it. And I think we haven't really priced that as effectively into the economy and into the markets. Yeah, I agree. We're in this kind of this Pollyanna state where we haven't really seen what the real economy is yet. And we're getting all this economic stats saying it's the greatest recovery ever off of off the quickest bear market. And it's fake at the end of the day. And I think yeah. that's what really we haven't gotten our heads around yet because as Sam's right, this isn't sustainable. You, you, these programs have to end at some point. And once they take the training wheels off the bike, is it something that the economy can keep going? And, and that's what you hope it is. But it still feels like it's way too early to tell and it's too fragile. And there's so much uncertainty for the second half of this year that that's why I think what's going to start creeping into the economic number or consumer spending. And, and that's really, I think, what we're going to find out in the next 20 in 2021. I think that could be the real risk for more volatility. Yeah, it's odd. You know, you look at, I mean, look at what happened with Tesla stock. Never mind the fact that it's up hundreds of percent during the last six months. That's one thing. How do you explain a company's valuation? It's been a terrific stock to own and it's, a, it's an exciting company to talk about. But Toyota sells millions more vehicles a month. Tesla just sold its first millionth vehicle this year. How do, how do you reconcile those differences? If you look at Apple stock, for example, Apple stock for a moment before it pulled back this week, 
was worth more than the entire Russell 2000. It was worth more briefly than the FTSE 100. So if you just look at the top 10 names, most people maybe aren't, aren't fluent in what the biggest British companies are. But AstraZeneca, GlaxoSmithKline, Royal Dutch Petroleum, BP, Unilever, well, those are all household names. How is Apple worth more than the entire top 100 businesses in the UK? How do you reconcile that against what's happening in the economy? They're the beneficiaries of the pandemic, but are they really to that extent? Are those valuations justifiable or, or, or are we in for, at some point, a reversion to the mean in terms of what these stocks should be worth versus the rest of the market? I definitely think there's a lot of risk in these mania stocks. And, and that's partly a function of just what happened in the market that we've we finally got the cult of equities back. It hasn't been around for a number of years that no one really talked about their day trading or their portfolios. They were all talking about real estate. And we finally got people back in the stock market and, and the amount of retail participation, the amount of day trading, which you want to encourage that the retail investment in the stock market, but it got too extreme again. And that's where you're getting a lot of the parallels to the dot-com crisis and the mania around certain different companies. And Tesla's probably the one that fits the bill the most. It's, it's a good concept company, some great technology, but the valuation doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and we'll have to see what happens there when the reckoning comes to that stock, because it, ha it has dropped since the split. But even just yeah. talking about the split, that I've never seen a company before, both Apple and Tesla, rally so significantly on the announcement they're splitting five for one. That has no implications to the valuation of the company, but I think Tesla was up 75% in August on that announcement and Apple was up 25%. Yeah. And that just doesn't make any economic sense at all. But when you look at Apple though, it's Apple is a different company than Tesla for sure. It's a real company. It's got real businesses. And I don't think it's as a risk of collapsing as much as Tesla would in a certain scenario. The stat that I saw a few days ago, which I thought was interesting is, Apple pays a very small dividend, but the dividend yield on it is 0.7, uh, which is basically equal to the U.S. 10-year bond right now. When you compare balance sheets, I, I like the Apple balance sheet a little better than the U.S. government right now. So yeah. you can argue that when you're looking at it from a dividend yield point of view, it's not that mispriced. So I, I think there's two different markets. They're the two big mania stocks right now, but, but it's very different than the dot-com crisis. Yeah, I wasn't suggesting that Apple is, isn't the business that it is. It's a phenomenal business. It's so far out there in terms of evaluation, it, it completely left Microsoft and Amazon behind. I, I think we get caught up as investors thinking about these kind of peripheral names, like these things that are happening, like Tesla and stuff. And, and we all know it's not real. And it's not to say that it's not a great company and it couldn't be a great company. Like Tesla may one day justify people making the bet that they did today. They may. Like, I, I'm, as I said to the guys, you look at the, if you could forecast out decisioning a probability tree of outcomes for Tesla, the, the range of outcomes from building a business that is very small to a building a business that is 10 times bigger than its market cap today suggests is in front of you. It's there. They could do something revolutionary and they also could do something terrible. The company almost went bankrupt, you know, even two years ago, right? Like it's, it's quite amazing when you think about the story. But that's not really the story. Tesla's just a story. And when you have companies that, that trade off of the, the narrative, the story, not of fundamentals, you can't hardly ever justify things that way. So put a Tesla aside. I think the thing that's really quite amazing, look, fundamentally, as, as Greg talked about earlier, there is a shift happening today into, call it offline to online. That is happening. And that's, it was happening in the background before. It accelerated by two, three years. So if you had a discounted cash flow assumption of these businesses, 
and the size of the addressable universe before COVID, you've just taken two years out of that and discounting you know, more aggressively and, and, and potentially even increasing growth rates of, those, um, of that uh, offline to online. And, and, and so much of the reasoning why Amazon and Apple and Google and to some degree Facebook, Microsoft have become so powerful, sorry, become so large and, and, and are the winners is because their power is so big. Never in the history of any industry have, have certain companies had so much power. And so they, at a time when they're, they're, I know there's a lot of talk about government intervention, regulation, things like that. But in the absence of actually something happening, these companies are just becoming more and more powerful. And Apple exudes a massive amount of cap of power. So the reality is, and then frankly, I don't think they're going to be a big focus of the any antitrust lawsuits and things like that. They're, I think others will get first focus on it. So Apple's just going to get stronger at a time when the backdrop for their services are very accelerant. So I think that's the first thing that's really important. We have to understand that. Now, who knows how it's going to play out? There's a lot of risks still, but, but I, I, like, whatever someone's trading at a big PE. But I want to say one thing about this. Like, the market is looking to growth, and they're looking for growth. And, in the, and they've been doing this for the last decade, really. In the absence of true economic growth, they, they search for growth, and they're paying up for growth, and that's what they're doing because they assume that lots of companies that are, are not growing, they, they can get those cheap anytime. Today, let's just go pay up for growth. But the problem, what we've seen really, and this isn't retail. Yes, there's a lot of statistics showing how the retail investors getting more active. And, but this, when you get to this scale, it, it's real money. It's big money that is driving these movements. You can't get Tesla at a $400 billion market cap without real money. Like It's not retail. Yeah. But I would say, if you think about the venture market is based on probabilities and spreading across a handful of uh, companies that you think are going to truly make you a hundred times your return, big multiple on your number, and you spread it out enough with a high probability with, based on your quality of your efforts that you have a very big barbell outcome. So if I pick 10 companies in the venture world, my hope is that one or two of them are going to make me a hundred times my money or more. And a bunch of them are going to get me back my money. And then a bunch of them are going to be zeros. But one or two of them making me a hundred times my money offsets against all the other ones to get me a phenomenal return on my capital. Now you look at what's happening in the tech world and we say, and Greg and I would look at it and say, Jesus, like the software space is trading. All of these things are trading at 40 times revenue. This doesn't make any sense, but that's what they're saying. The, the world of venture has come into the tech space and they're saying that not every one of these guys may, deserves 40 times revenue. But one or two of them do. And if I buy enough of them, the one or two of them are going to make me 50 times or 30 times my money. And the other ones are going to make me 50 cents on the dollar or 30 cents on the dollar or 20 cents on the dollar. But the ones that made me 50 times or 30 times my money offset against the downside such that I made a better return than just buying the S&P 500. That's what they're betting on. And yes, not every company deserves 40 times revenues. Maybe Shopify does. I don't know. Based on their trajectory of growth rates? Maybe Peloton does, but not everyone does. Tesla definitely doesn't deserve the market cap if you look at it in the context, but maybe it will. But does Nikola, does every electro, electro vehicle business? No. So that's the problem. They're just betting like a venture capitalist. And that's not 
really good for everyone else. This isn't the right way to invest. And, and the big question is, as an investor, why are you doing this? If you're speculating, then yeah, you can go do that. But there's a reason why not everyone invests like venture capital, because it's not really the right type of risk profile for most people. The amount of, amount of risk in different speculative pockets has gotten too extreme. And, and I think that's where, from, from, if you want to be bullish on the market right here, the ideal scenario now is we get some sort of rotation. Uh, you need to, there, there's so much money in the system and it's, it's, it's got to go somewhere and it's not going to the bond market and other areas right now. So if you want to be bullish on equities, it's really you want to get that rotation away from these, these hot valuations in the tech sectors and rotate to some of the lagging sectors, which there's still a lot of good value there. There's still a lot of good dividends being paid. And I think that's really what we need to carry the market higher if we're going to go back to all-time highs and to keep having a positive 2021. It can't be the same leadership stocks. They've done their job. They've gotten us this far. It's got to rotate to other areas where there's, where there's cheap valuations, where there's M&A potential, where there's there's margin expansion where these companies can turn around. And I think that's going to be the game. And that's why I think we're moving into a stock pickers market more than anything else. You don't want to just passively buy the index. You want to do some bottoms up analysis. You want to find good companies that are trading at attractive valuations, have room to grow their, their earnings and, and create, create real value. And I think that's the move we're going into because there's so much liquidity out there. I don't think there's going to be a massive crash by any stretch, but I think we can get a rotation into some of these other names. To bring it to a point, that's not investing. That is speculation. But the bottom line is that when these stocks are growing on multiple expansion the way these companies have, it's very distracting, isn't it? It's very distracting for investors who have been set on the correct path of having designed portfolios that are optimized for risk, for their risk profile that are, and these things are distractions. Like, why don't I own more Tesla? People are looking at these while they're looking at their well-designed portfolios and then thinking, I wish I had, this is where mistakes happen, right? This is, this is where, where people go ahead and, and they abandon their plans. And so that happens when things are negative, like in March, and it also happens when things are so positive. Behavioral challenge, the challenges of individuals is both on the upside and the downside, no question, and to see it, and, and to see it in such a rapid, extreme, hot, cold in this six, seven month period has been quite interesting to watch. It's a behavioral scientist's uh, dream to sit and watch and analyze, right? But I would say to your point, I think that's just noise. And, and I go back to what I said earlier around how to plan. This is no different than on the downside, making how do you make the right decision? It's on the same the upside. It's you got to have planned this well in advance. There's a little bit of the noise of this falling into the market exposures like S&P 500, which is, of course, the average stock is underperforming the, the index because of that. But if you're in broadly diversified portfolios, all the rest of it, you're being weighted up by some of these high growth names and higher uh, value names, but you're also participating in a lot of the value names and things like that have still continued to be eaten up. But you look at the markets, the market indexes are positive, but the banks are still down 10, 12, 15% from their highs. So there's still lots of names that are well below what they were uh, prior to uh, COVID. I want to step back to something that Greg said also, I want to just talk about <laughs> that venture concept that is being played out in the growthier parts of the, the pockets is absolutely it's one way to play that way, that way of thinking. And, and in fact, it's probably the right way to play a Shopify today uh, or a bunch of those kinds of names, because I don't know if Shopify is going to truly justify its 40 times revenues. But if I bought right. 10 companies that were doing really important things, then maybe together, two or three of them would. And 
I, I like Shopify. I love the company. You talked about loving Tesla. You love some of these things. I love the company. Uh, uh, I love Apple, all these things. The question is, how do I play the stock? And, and yeah. I find it difficult to play that as a single stock. Maybe that's the best way to do it. But I want to flip to the other side of this, which is all of the names that in fact are beaten up the COVID portfolio, like the companies that have truly been impacted, like the airlines, the, the right. transportation, the travel, leisure, real estate, things like that have really been impacted negatively by COVID. That idea of just buying all of them would be the dumbest thing you can do. Buying the like uh, buying 10 of them and saying, oh, one, two of them are going to make me a lot of money and, and eight of them are, are not, it actually is a dumb thing because the, the, the problem right now is a few of them may actually be awesome bets. I thought you were going to say it wouldn't be the dumbest thing to do. No, it's <laughs> not. I was going to say, to what yeah. Greg said, this is a time to be a great fundamental asset investor. And whether you're an equity investor or a debt investor. And what you have to, though, think about is your term. So if you think about airlines for a moment, and, and you think about cruise companies, you think about hotel companies and all these other things, and you say to yourself, okay, what's changed? And who are the one or two companies that truly are going to win? Like people will fly again. They're not, they may not fly next month or next six months, but people are going to get on planes again. People are going to get on cruise ships again because I, I don't like cruise ships, but there are people who love cruise ships. Like, I, sec- I second they're, they're that. I have... <laughs> You're right. <laughs> and, and people will travel. People go to hotels. People go to resorts. People do these things. The question is, not everyone's going to survive. So what you need to be good at is to figure out who's going to win. And then you have to say, how long is it going to take and how patient am I to wait that out? But if you buy the right ones, I think you can make a huge amount of money. Because when that comes back, they're going to go back and make lots of money for investors. But you got to be great at fundamental stock selection, bond selection, asset selection, all the rest of it. So the active investor truly can make a difference there. Whereas I think on the growthier parts, you just buy a, buy a bunch of them at these big valuations and then a few of them will justify. Now, you could forecast and you could probably guess that a few of them will be better than others. But I actually think buying the, the innovation sector probably is better than just buying you know, the, the, the COVID portfolio en masse. Yeah. So what are the areas of opportunity that you think are the most plum right now? It's going to be interesting because when you got the market at an all-time high, it's hard to say that you can just sure. buy, buy everything here. But there are opportunities out there and it is going to be in some of that value area that's been forgotten that people don't want to look at. And, and certainly being Canadian, we probably spend too much time looking at the energy sector because there's a ton of value there. But you really want to make a big bet on energy when you've got the forces of ESG and different macro and the economics going on. But there's going to be some plays out there that really for good bottoms up stock pickers that do their work, for their balance sheets, there's going to be tremendous opportunity over time looking at the energy sector. Um, certainly, we've been looking at just what are the benefits of this whole new world we've got. Like we were making across the different portfolios, looking at the auto sector. That is, people are avoiding public transit. They're going to be driving more. And a lot of the companies are going off of that. So. There's a lot, that's a lot of stock picking is going to be across all sectors. One area that we touched on already, though, but I do think is going to be a lasting impact of the amount of stimulus out there is the gold sector. Uh, we've all been reminded of why you own gold. It's a good insurance policy. And I think coming out of the, with the response to this, there's a very real risk that we're either going to get some sort of inflation coming or the U.S. dollar could come under pressure. If either of those scenarios happen, that's a great environment for gold. So I don't think every investor has to have 25% of gold, as we talked about earlier, but 
maybe 5% gold is going to be something that people should look at in their portfolio. And the gold miners, which really had been the laughing stock of, of the capital markets for a number of years, when you look at them now, they're actually be, they've turned their, their operations around. There's some good companies out there with real management teams that are not making stupid acquisitions like they had in the past. I think this is a good time to look at some of these cyclical sectors. And, and this could set up for a decent time for Canada as we've got a lot of these industrial cyclical sectors which really have been forgotten in the global sense, but could play perfectly into an environment where you've got an increase in inflation and some and you lower U.S. dollar. Yeah, uh, commodities in general have been doing quite well. That's an area that's really been neglected for, for a very long time. And now we're seeing a rebound accelerated by COVID. Oh, absolutely. There's so much change. The whole, uh, if people move out of cities, they have to build new houses with a low interest rates. So people are buying new houses. And we've also had an underinvestment of the commodity sector. There's no real new copper mines being built. So, so the supply demand economics are, are really in the favor. So a lot of these sectors that have really been forgotten, I think, are setting up for a tremendous opportunity for the next few years. What do you think of lithium and cobalt? That's a tougher game to play. Uh, certainly it's really not developed yet. And in certain parts of the world, there's lots of it just at the right price. You can get a lot of it there. People have been trying to say that's a play on the electric vehicles, but it still doesn't really make that big a play. I think if you want to play a lot of these plays, you just go simple and go with copper. Copper's use in all electronics and there's more copper in a Tesla than there is lithium. So I think you really just want to look at copper as a play if you look at global growth and a lot of these trends going forward. What are some of the areas that are notably bearish to you? I, I, I know, you know we've talked about high-flying technology stocks and similar names that have had big multiple expansions during this period. So it's hard to be bullish on many of these shares because they're so inflated. But what areas of the market are you actually bearish about going forward, given your outlook around the market, around the economy? I think it, it, there's a lot of different factors out there. Certainly technology would be the area that I'd be most, I think, at risk due to the valuations. But the other phenomenon out there, which is really just a sign of mania, is the SPACs. There's so many SPACs going around, and that is almost the epitome of a mania sector going on. Is You're basically giving someone a blind pool of assets to go to money to go out and do what they want with it, and people are paying a premium on that. And I think that's one of the pockets of the market. It's not a huge pocket, but there's a lot of risk in that, and that's really a, a good area in the coal mine of what's going on in speculative activity. I would just you know say in the short term, I think the broad markets are a bit of a risky area. And I think we've seen pretty, as we just talked about, a pretty robust move in stocks and evaluations broadly at a time when there's probably some volatility and risk that isn't being priced in effectively. And we'll see that. And so in the short term, I wouldn't be surprised if you know, what we've seen in the last week with market declines being a little bit more broad, especially going into the election as well, right? The election was always going to be the, the biggest risk for this year. And I think that's something that people had forgot as we went through the, the COVID shutdown. And, and that's going to come right in our face quite quickly. And I think that's going to set up for more volatility. And I think that's, you've got markets at all time highs and some crowded trades. I think I agree with some this is time you want to take down some of that risk and, and make sure that if you looked at the experience of your portfolio through March, you may want to take a little bit off the table because and make sure you're prepared for more volatility heading into the fall. You guys have any bets on on who's going to take the White House? I think the bigger bet is will it be solved by the end of this year? Or will <laughs> yeah. Maybe the bet is whether or not the, the current incumbent will leave the office. Uh, <laughs> right. 
that, that's probably more of the bigger question. It will he concede the loss if he loses? I think we all have our emotional uh, goals out of this, but the question is: there's a lot to. There's still two months left uh, between now and November third, and uh, there's still a lot to be resolved. And uh, look, it's not looking great for Trump. There aren't many. If you look at the last number of years, there hasn't been a single thing that has gone in his favor from the 2016 kind of numbers. All the factors that led to his results, but and there's a lot of risks in voter turnout, vaccines, just general people. There's three debates. And we all know that this is an election that Joe Biden can lose. Trump may not win it, but Joe Biden can lose it. And so there's a lot to be figured out still. There's a lot of skepticism around the vaccines, isn't there? We did a poll and we've had now about a thousand responses to that poll. And our sample is advisors. 64% of advisors have said, yes, they'll get the vaccine when it comes out. But there's this other 35% that say no. That's no or maybe or yeah, that's that standard. I mean, you have Americans right now. I think it's I think it is thirty five percent of Americans will not take the the vaccine, and that's the so it's one thing to produce the vaccine in a reasonable amount of time. The second is to get people to actually take it. It is a risk. It doesn't mean that just because you get a vaccine, there's actually some great charts that you can look at of previous not pandemics, but but previous kind of challenge health issues. And, and when the vaccine was produced, it still took time for the the thing to be abolished. And so it takes time for these things to happen. I would say, as a joking matter, I, I won't take the vaccine until Angela Merkel says it's okay to take. So, so that, that's when I'll take the vaccine. Uh, but I think, look, I, I think people will take the vaccine over time. And But I think it's more a question of, will it be an effective vaccine produced in a reasonable amount of time? It's going to take a while. There's a lot of effort going on. If one gets produced, it'll be the fastest to ever get produced, I think, in history. No question. But it still has to be decided that there will be one produced. Yeah, it's a modern day Manhattan project going on. Because I, I think the, yeah. the other record for a vaccine is three years. And they're trying to... It's actually four plus years. It's four plus years. Right. And uh, so, yeah, it's going to take a bit. But I think that if there is one to be made, it'll be made within four years for sure. So it could be 18 months, it could be 12 months, it could be three months from now. But the point is that there still hasn't been decided that they can actually make, there is a vaccine that would be produced for this uh, this virus. That sort of blows out the idea that, you know, back in uh, April, May, they were talking about at minimum 18 months for for a vaccine, let alone a therapy. If you actually look at the, the the work that goes into a vaccine production, there's a bunch, of course, the scientific efforts and, and, and stuff. And then there's the testing and the approval process and the results and things like that. And then there's the manufacturing and distribution. What America did was two things. The risk of that middle segment for the scientific. So they, they put a lot of effort into the scientific. But what they did was they pre-funded by buying a bunch of the vaccines from multiple players, they pre-funded the risk of that failure because it's a binary, like a venture failure. If it works, it's huge. If it doesn't, it can be zero. It's all the, you spend billions of dollars and it could go to zero. They pre-funded that. So the American government did that. And that was a really powerful thing. So they took the ri- a large part of the capital risk away from the, the, the drug companies. The second thing that they've done uh, is they've, alongside some private players like Bill Gates and others, they've actually gone and set up the distribution, the manufacturing facilities today as opposed to waiting. And so they're all sitting there. And so why this is so cool is that they pre-funded the biggest part of the risk and they've got the manufacturing all prepared and ready for when a vaccine is produced and gets approved, it will you know fly through manufacturing and be ready to go. 
I, I think that's what will accelerate it. The question is, that first part, can they prove to create a vaccine that will be effective? And they haven't yet done that yet. So that's the big question. So, Sam, why Angela Merkel? She's a doctor, and so she has, uh, I, I trust her. But two is, I, I actually think, look, from a leader, global leader's perspective, I think she's one of the, the great leaders, someone that you can trust. So I said this in, in the tongue-in-cheek and joke, but I actually mean it. I would trust a vaccine from Germany and approved from Germany before I had trust one from Trump. You're not going for the Russian one? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that's a no? <laughs> okay, what about fixed income? First, government, and then if you have any thoughts on credit. I know that's, uh, that's Sandy's area, but what are your thoughts on uh, government bonds, treasuries, Canada bonds? To start, the long bond's been one of the best performing assets this year. And and I think most people guess that it's outperformed most global in equity indices. And that's really a function of when interest rates were basically cut to zero globally, that long duration bonds that really exploded higher. Uh, but now if you're buying a long duration bond, you're taking the risk that they can go to negative. And, and I don't want to make that bet because I don't think we're going to go to negative rates. So we've been shorting the duration a lot of our bond portfolios. And we think there's a lot of opportunity there. If you do get the sense that inflation is coming back, given all the stimulus out, there's a real chance that yields will start to back up. Rates may not, so that will steepen the curve, but yields will start to move higher. So I think you want to be shorter duration on your fixed income portfolio. And I think there's a ton of opportunity in credit. As banks and, and companies are looking for different sources of financing, credit's going to be a great opportunity to make some money, very much like stock picking on the equity side. I think a good active credit fund is going to outperform here. And I would just say, Bonds are the most expensive asset in the market today, but they've been the most expensive asset in the market for 10 years. They, they've just, like many bubbles, they can just get more expensive. And we've seen that. And so it's extremely hard to call what, if there's a return squeaked out in treasuries, to Greg's point, we, I think it'd be a really bad signal and a long-term negative thing to see negative interest rates. But the problem is that the buyers of, of these assets are not the same buyers that you and I, you know, the way we think. They're not fundamental. They're, they're central banks, they're um, the people who are doing proxies and dollar hedging, things like that. There's a lot of things going on that are backing these assets and causing the rates to be where they are. And you can speculate on treasuries and, and long duration bonds. And that speculation has been in your favor in the last year. But the reality is it, you have to call it what it is. It's not investing, it's speculation. It's a trade. An investor who has a long-term perspective owning a strategic ownership of long-duration bonds today is betting that they will effectively make less money than 0.7% right. uh, or any other asset over the next 10 years. And so that's the, if I buy a 10-year treasury bond right now and hold it for 10 years in my portfolio, I'm going to make 0.7% less fees. And yeah, like that to me... It uh, doesn't make economic sense for a strategic, fundamental investor. Uh, but if you're a tactical investor, you may bet that because you say, I want to um, de-risk a further deflation or I want to de-risk interest rates going to negatives or whatever. It be. Uh, th that's one scenario. But it's a probability in your portfolio, not a strategic bet that when I buy a, an asset, you, the reason what makes a great asset really strong is that you're buying an asset that fundamentally is a good return expectation. Two is it fundamentally has a good risk return to associated, a risk return uh, associated with that uh, return opportunity. And then three is that I'm thinking about the term of that investment long enough, and then I put a bunch of those diversified exposures together. 
that's how I buy it, build a portfolio. Treasuries and long duration bonds or mid duration bonds don't check off any of those opportunities today. Okay. So you've got a 60, 40 portfolio, which has done up till now extremely well. It's been, it's been a very successful standard bread portfolio for decades. Where do you take that 40% now? Assuming what you just said, Sam, fundamentally, I think we, we all agree with the idea that there's very limited return in terms of income from having government bonds. It may be like this year, it provided some ballast to equity portfolios during that very dicey period where you know risk on rapidly shifted to risk off. And of course, the intervention from the government, from central banks to drop yields has proven to be a, a good trade as well. But secondly, how much more of that is there in the market? Will the government allow yields to go negative? The answer to that likelihood is probably no. So if, you're, if you've got 40% of your portfolio in government bonds, which is a very traditional holding, where do you go to for your allocation of fixed income? Or do you just eliminate the fixed income allocation, the traditional fixed income allocation going forward and change that 40% into other assets? What, what do you do? It's, it, it's the same thing that people have been doing for the last 10 years is they've been uh, taking on greater risk in their portfolio, more equity-like risk. Uh, whether they're buying preferred shares or they're buying credit or they're buying longer, more dividend stocks, whatever it be, and they're doing that. And and that's probably the right answer. The the problem is you are readjusting your risk return on the risk of your portfolio. In my opinion, you need to uh, focus on also at the same time, reducing the risk of those asset classes by um, hedging out and managing through derivatives and, and, and other types of exposures to replicate the same principles of diversification and risk management from equities themselves that you would have otherwise gotten from fixed income and, and bonds. And I think it's really critical. And we've been saying this for a while, the 60-40 portfolio fundamentally, you either accept the lower expected return of it and keep going, uh, or you rebalance your portfolio structure and try to achieve a better expected return, which is what most people need to do because most people can't accept a 4% or 3.5% expected IRR on their portfolio for the next 15, 20 years if they want to meet their retirement goals. And the other area that's going to benefit is the alt space. So the alternatives have really come on in the last few years. So right. I think that's going to be an area that's going to pick up part of that 40% sleep, whether it's from private debt, whether it's from structured notes. Uh, I think those are both areas that are going to become more prevalent in a lot of investors' portfolios. From your vantage point, do you see investors making that shift? Is it happening? Oh, absolutely. We're seeing more interest in a structured note product than we have in some of our other products. And we're seeing a lot of people looking for sources of, of income away from the traditional sources. And then that's going to a lot of entered areas. So I think advisors are making those changes and we're starting to see a lot of interest in these areas. You know, Sam, that's the question I've been asking you for years throughout all the conversations that we've had. We've talked about this. And I guess my only concern watching that, watching it from the sidelines as an observer, is that area of alternatives has a really long adoption curve. Uh, yeah, there is. But look, we've had a lot of time to talk about them. And I think people are, should be familiarizing themselves with the fact that risk management and strategies that employ risk management critically is important. I also think that experiences like this are, are really important to uh, teach people that the importance of it. And, and again, you know, look, if, if you if you just keep doing what you've been doing for the last 20 years, you, you could you, that's one approach. And, and guess what? Kudos, it's working. Investing is about 
stepping back and having perspective. It's not looking historically, it's looking forward. And we've seen this before. <laughs> we've seen environments where equities are expensive. We've seen environments where recessions happen. We've seen environments where interest rates are ridiculously low. And we know what happens when interest rates rise and normalize and economies grow and things like that. And, and so I just think it's important for everybody to step back and remind themselves of the fundamentals of good long-term investing and good portfolio construction. If we do that, the logical answer comes out of it. It's actually quite basic. And I think it's really important to do that today more than ever before. In the last six, seven months, we've been whipsawed a little bit. And so to some degree, we filled the gap in the holes, but people have been made look okay. If they didn't make a bad decision, or they didn't sell in March or April, they're actually looking like, oh, my portfolio is flat or, or maybe better than it was at the beginning of the year. And what pandemic? The reality is that's actually the moment where you count your chips and say, oh, shoot, I got to take some money off. I got to make sure I've, I've, I take my winning and, and purposely balance in the right way for what the next 10 years are going to look like, the next five years are going to look like. Because I... I benefited from being a, a non-active investor in the last the number of months and years. Yeah, we've been given a, a really incredible second chance again. <laughs> that's, that's right. It, it, you, everyone's, if you didn't do anything, if you did something, then, then yeah, it's been hard. Like, you know, getting back into the market has been extremely difficult for people. Um, but if you didn't do anything, you were given a second chance and you, you've got your net asset value. And it's a question of what you do with those that value. So before I let you guys go, during this very long self-isolation, what have you been streaming, watching, any great podcasts you've listened to, any great books you've read? I'll start with, I think I've been doing a ton of reading, as I always do in the summers. Uh, and, and during the year, I usually try to, but the, the summers, I read a ton. Read some great books. Um, and also just had a lot of time to, to stop and read personally about just industry, trying to get myself back into the curiosity of learning and things like that. And that's been really important. And I think those are really critical things to do when you have a, an extra minute. And, and we didn't have those extra minutes in March, April, and May, but you know, in July and August, we had some extra minutes and, and, and I try to use that to learn uh, as much as I can and reset my perspective of, of the next number of years and, and try to have some vision to where we're going. Greg? Yeah, the same. I think it was a great time to read for the summer, especially with not the distraction of sports. There's more time to sit and think. And I went back and reread Too Big to Fail just to see what the learnings from that last crisis and how do you apply to this. And, and that was really the governments and central banks took way too long to react. But there's just a lot of good time to read and think and, and step back and look at it. As I think there's a lot of benefits that have come out from the self-isolation more than anything else. Yeah, it's been a really great time for, for introspection. So did you not watch anything besides, <laughs> did you watch uh, anything? I mean, we all watched The Last Dance, which was a phenomenal. Yeah, that was phenomenal. Great, great show. And uh, we, I'm sad to see some of my favorite shows like Billions didn't finish the season and things like that. But we, we watched it. We stopped watching that uh, right before that we went away for the summer and, and then now got to pick it back up here in the fall. But there's some great, great streaming shows on and we've, we've enjoyed them all and as much as you can watch a lot of movies on Netflix and on TV and and a lot of, I'd say, you know, more than anything else, and I, 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 so for, for me, I've got four young kids, so I get a lot of time with Paw Patrol and all of those wonderful shows. And so that's been really great. Yeah, and I would say the timing of Disney Plus has never been better. The amount of time we've had to watch through the Disney lineup, I think the, the timing has been perfect. So we've been doing that also. 
That's right. Streaming is the new thing. And Disney killed it with that launch. Good for them. Yeah, they really did. They're the only real threat to Netflix. They've got the content that has relevance to people. It's it's not a threat as much as uh, I think it's just there's going to be multiple platforms, just like there are many multiple channels. The question is who has enough of the quality of content that compels you to want to be a subscriber for that. And Disney has enough content to suggest to many people that they should add that on top of a Netflix. Netflix uh, has already proven that they have their demand and uh, there'll be probably a three or four or five ultimately long-term platforms that people will be willing to subscribe for. Psalm, Greg, thank you so much. This will pass, and but let's stay, make sure that we take care of ourselves and, and our friends, our families, and, and our businesses and our clients and get out there and, and be strong-willed in every way we can and make other people feel great too. Thank you. Thank you both for your time. It's been such a great conversation. Good. Thanks very much. Let us know what you think about the topics we've discussed. Please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast if you have not already. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Make sure you give us a like and please, please leave us a rating and or a review. Ratings and reviews are extremely important. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll be back with you very soon. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Advisor Analyst. You can also find us and follow us on LinkedIn.